This sermon, The Lord is Doing Something, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, February 27th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. This morning we, we end our time with Stephen. It's, it's been a short but powerful telling of Stephen's life and ministry. A turning point, really, in the history of the church, both theologically as well as the trajectory that it is on. And as you're turning there, I want you to know that I, and I speak for Tim as well, I believe that the Lord is at work. I believe the Lord is at work in Sovereign Grace Church. I believe the Lord, in fact, is preparing us for something. If, if we just walk the halls of the church, very practically, there's a newness, I believe. There's a newness with people, a new pastor, new deacons, new members, emerging new leaders. The financial provision from the Lord to us as a church, well, we've been financially healthier than than I can remember. The unity and harmony within our body is greater than I can ever remember. And without trying to predict what the Lord might do, one thing I do believe he is preparing us for is Growth, not just spiritual growth, he's doing that, but numerical growth. I believe that that the Lord is preparing us for growth, not through church transfers, there's nothing wrong with Christians moving from church to church, but through gospel conversions. And while the, the practical fruit of leaders and money are certainly important to that, What's most important to that is the work that God does in our own hearts. We heard it six weeks ago, spiritual revival. It's an inward work before it's an outward demonstration. Spiritual revival is something that happens in us before it's an outward reality. And the inward work needed The inward work needed has been highlighted in the book of Acts in unique ways, and it is highlighted in the last stand of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, as we will see this morning. And so to that end, as we look to God's work in us, would you stand and let's finish off our time with Stephen this morning We're going to be looking at Acts 7, verses 54 through 60. Luke continues to tell the history of the early church. Now, when they heard these things, that is the Sanhedrin, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, 
Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Maybe seated. Lord in heaven, seated on your throne, ruling and reigning over all things, indeed causing all things, bringing them to your intended purposes, even if we don't understand them. Lord, we now come to your word. This is your word. Use it this morning to encourage us, to convict us, to strengthen our faith for our good, for the sake of this mission, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to draw three things from the text. I'm not going to give them all to you up front, but three, three things that we see expressed in this last stand, if you will, of Stephen. The first one, in fact, all of them, all three of them are going to be very familiar, and they might not pop out from the page right away. But when we understand what's going on here, there's something deeper than the seed of the church, as Tertullian said, the seed of the church going forth in the first martyr, which is Stephen. So nothing groundbreaking here this morning, but certainly I believe exactly what we need to hear as we embrace the work that the Lord is doing in us and by, and Lord willing, through us. So the first thing I want us to see here from Stephen's example isn't merely courage. The first thing I want us to see here is that Stephen, and you've heard it already many times from the pulpit in the last few weeks, Stephen was filled with The Spirit. Two weeks ago, we watched on as Stephen, standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin, he preached a sermon that set redemptive history. You remember this? He preached a sermon that set redemptive history not in Moses, not in the law, not in the temple, but in Christ's work at the cross. And he did that in a way that completely blindsided his accusers. They would have been nodding with him, remember, as he preached this sermon. But then at the end, he turned the story on them. He pointed the finger at them. In essence, he said, you 
are the covenant-breaking, Messiah-murdering lawbreakers. You are worse than your fathers. And the moment he did that, they flipped. (laughs) Notice verse 54. Peter has just preached the sermon, a, a, a redemptive history. He turns, points his finger at them, and Luke says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. We could, the imagery is in our head, isn't it? We could just see it. it, it, it in some sense, it's almost comical. But, but Luke is very intentional with his description. To grind one's teeth, really, that was an expression of violent anger. You, you know, we, we kind of, we might joke around, this was, this was a very real expression that these people were not happy. They were angry and they were about to get violent. The, the original word there, in fact, you'll notice it, the original word translated enraged. In some versions, it's, it's cut to the quick. But, but it means literally sawn in two. In other words, their hearts, what they heard, broke them. It broke their hearts. Now, not with a godly conviction like we saw at Pentecost when Peter preached an amazing sermon and they were cut to the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? That was Holy Spirit conviction unto salvation. This is, this is a different effect. This is more like the effect when they responded to Peter's sermon in chapter 5, verse 33. And you remember they said, when they heard this, they were enraged. Same word, enraged, same original word. They were enraged and wanted to kill the disciples. Stephen has just looked the most powerful group of Jewish leaders in the eyes and told them, you are worse than your hard-hearted, God-rejecting, idolatrous fathers. And they broke. They snapped. Nobody could hold them back this time. Nobody could hold them back, as we will see in just a moment. But before, but before Luke tells us what this mob, this murderous mob, did to Stephen, you'll notice he, he makes this immediate contrast to the violent, enraged group of leaders. Notice in verse 55. Or let's go back to verse 54 just for context. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Verse 55. But he, this Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Make no mistake, Stephen knew these men wanted to kill him, which is exactly what they will do. Stephen knew that blasphemy, according to Leviticus 24, blasphemy was 
a capital offense. And he knew that the Sanhedrin considered him at this point a blasphemer. So follow the logic. The conclusion is pretty obvious. Stephen is in trouble, and he knows it. And yet there is this stark contrast on full display for every Christian that would come after this moment in history to see how Stephen would handle this moment, juxtaposed to the murderous Sanhedrin Stephen is a man at peace. He is not, like his opponents, enraged. He is not grinding his teeth back at them. He is not frantically capitulating or desperately qualifying what he just said. He's at peace. Derek Thomas notes this when he says, there could hardly be a greater contrast in the way Luke described what happened following Stephen's sermon. The Sanhedrin became irrational, hot with rage, murderous in their thoughts, utterly consumed with anger. Stephen? Stephen was contemplative, calm. I love this word, seraphic, angelic. To be sure, Luke does not want us to misappropriate the source of this peace in the midst of real trouble. He wants to make sure that we don't believe that the contrast is rooted in Stephen's personality or in a level of self-esteem, or in intellectual superiority. The contrast is rooted, look at verse 55 with me, but he, full of the Spirit. There it is. There it is again. He was full of the, you, you might think Luke sounds like a broken record. But far from a broken record, Luke keeps, this, this, this message that Luke keeps putting before us, they were filled with the Spirit. They prayed and, and, the, and they were filled with the Spirit and courage came on them. Every time we encounter somebody, we realize that, that they're full of the Spirit. Luke is not a broken record. It's not that he doesn't know what else to say, but rather it's that God gives us this divine drumbeat. There is a cadence in the history of the church in Acts. The gospel was going forth. People were being saved. Persecution, yes, it was driving and taking the gospel, as we will see next week, beyond the borders and the walls of Jerusalem. And we time and time again are coming across this reality that the Christians were full of the Spirit as they stood in the face of real opposition. So this is not a broken record. This is a divine drumbeat explaining to us self-sufficient idolaters as we are the source for God's unstoppable church. And the drumbeat 
reveals a primary difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. And it's not that we come here on Sunday mornings. (laughs) It's being filled with the Spirit. Stephen was filled with Luke. Luke wants us to know immediately. Murderous mob, here's Stephen. What do I want them to know about Stephen first and foremost? He's filled with the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. Think about that. In our mission to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel to the world around us, the God of the universe the creator of all things, the one who has all things at his disposal and can bring about his purposes in any way in which he chooses and his wisdom is infinite, he chooses to avail himself to us in a very real way. He fills us with his spirit, empowering us giving us courage, and yes, even peace in the face of real, real difficulties. I think, I think for this reason, it, it benefits us, church, to, to evaluate ourselves often. Is my first impulse to invite the Spirit to work in and through me. Whenever something breaks in my house, I'm not mechanical. You know what my first impulse is? YouTube. I know just enough to get in trouble, and YouTube is like, gives me permission to get in trouble. My first impulse tends to be Okay, let's look up a YouTube video. I'm pretty sure I can do this on my own. I'm pretty sure I don't need somebody else. That's my first impulse when it comes to fixing something, is to look it up on YouTube. God has provided his spirit so that our first impulse can be to cry out to him. Ephesians 5, 18, be continually filled with the Spirit. It's a command. God does the filling, but he calls us to pray and invite. Lord, fill me freshly for the task that you have before me. Empower me to share the gospel with this neighbor. Listen, the Lord is doing something, and it includes growing in our pursuit of the empowering presence of the Spirit. Far more important than new leaders. Far more important than financial health. Far more important than new members. New members, you are important. We're glad you're here. But God is doing it. It includes us individually and collectively growing in our pursuit of the empowering presence of the Spirit. And you know what? I believe he is. I believe we are. I hear it in your prayers more 
and more. I've noticed it. I've noticed when I hear people pray more and more, I hear people praying, Lord, fill me freshly with your spirit. Not, not as a canned slogan, but as a heavenly appeal for a genuine biblical conviction. The Lord is doing something. And his spirit is the source behind the doing. The second thing that we see in Stephen's last stand that is so critical to responding to what the Lord is doing is, is we have to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Again, if that sounds like a broken record, it's not. It's a divine drumbeat of what we need to hear most. <laughs> notice notice what, it's, what Luke writes in verse 55. But he's full of the Spirit. Look what happens. He takes his eyes off the mob and he gazes into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Luke tells us here that, that Stephen's focus suddenly shifts from this angry mob to, to the heavenly throne room where he sees, he sees, it doesn't say, and I saw something like. This is not like John's vision in Revelation where he repeatedly says, I saw something like. No, he says, I saw. I saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, given the structure of the sentence, I think, I think this view into the heavens, I think it was actually, uh, I think it was a special filling of the Spirit. I think, I think you know, Luke immediately says, he, and being filled with the Spirit. This doesn't happen every day, right? <laughs> we get that. I think there's a special filling of the Spirit for Stephen in this very unique moment. Even juxtaposed to the Jewish leaders whose eyes were shut to the glory of God. They could only see this world and the things as we saw two weeks prior, the things they had made with their hands. But Stephen, because he was filled with the Spirit, had his eyes open to the transcendence of God in a unique and profound way that, listen, that made God, oh, if we could get this, that made God more real than the murderous mob before him. You get that? This vision, what he saw, God in Christ, and as we will see in a moment, what was represented in the throne room, It was more real than the mob that wanted to kill him in the moment. You know what we call that? that that's called the ultimate eternal perspective. The ultimate eternal. I think there's two significant details I want us to notice here. First, Stephen fixes. That's the meaning of gaze that Luke uses there, the word. He fixes his eyes, and you'll notice, really, he fixes his eyes on the son of Man, Did you notice that, how he described Jesus? He, he referred to him as the son of man. Now, now, that's uncommon. That really is. It's in Scripture, but it's not the most common title for 
Jesus. If you do a little study, you'll find out that in the Old Testament, Daniel 7, that that was a messianic title used referring to Jesus and I think verses 13 and 14 as the son of man who will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom. There is a sense of enthronement and that people from every nation and language that they would serve the son of man. What a glorious picture connected to this title, son of man. It's used in the gospels. Jesus actually uses the Son of Man to describe himself numerous times. And and they're in direct connection to one, his suffering on the cross. You see that in Luke 9. There's references also in direct connection to, to his vindicating work of all who believe in him. In fact, in Matthew 25, it it talks about the son of man who will vindicate his people and it's connected to his heavenly glory, very much like what we see right here in Stephen's vision. And so while this is not a very common title for Jesus, used here, Stephen's vision of the son of man, it it affirms his argument that he just laid out in verses 1 through, 50, verses 1 through uh, 53. It affirms his argument for the supremacy of Jesus. The Son of Man is certainly, it, it brings to mind his full humanity. But as we see it used in the Gospels, as we see it used in the Old Testament, it is much more than his humanity. It speaks to the supremacy of Jesus. Now, the second thing that's interesting here is that, did you notice, did you notice that Jesus is standing? Did you catch that? Now, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is the only place in Scripture where Jesus is seen as standing at the right hand of God. Normally, he is described as sitting at the right hand of God, which, by the way, is the position of power and authority, rule and reign. Why is Jesus standing? Instead of sitting, Kevin DeYoung says it is for, in referencing this question, he says it is for this reason. He has stood to receive Stephen's testimony and to be his advocate. He has stood that he might come forward to be the judge of those who will trample upon God's prophet. Jesus, in other words, is rising from his throne to come to Stephen's defense and judge his persecutors, that this is a powerful moment, that Stephen finds himself in. It's a picture of heavenly approval of Stephen's new covenant message. Look back at chapter 6, verse 15 real quick. I have put this off for three weeks. (laughs) This was our very first sermon, but did you notice how it ended? Verse 15. 
and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We don't see this often in Scripture. Moses on the mountain, Jesus in the transfiguration. But when we do see it, I believe it's a sign of God's presence and pleasure. As we saw two weeks ago, Stephen's sermon was a theological break for Judaism. And as we'll see next week, it's a critical transition in the church's mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because there is a man waiting who was mentioned in verse 59 and there is a turn in chapter 8 verse 1 and Saul approved of his execution. If you don't know who Saul is, come back next week because we're going to talk about this man who stood at the edge, and watched and approved what would happen to Stephen. But right now what we have is even as a man rejected Stephen's message and will approve of his execution, Stephen, a glowing face and a standing savior at the right hand of God, that position of unmatchable power and authority, it represents a divine stamp of approval on the message of Stephen, which was Christ is supreme over it all. Let's, Let's just pause here for a moment. What an encouragement This vision must have been to Stephen. In the midst of violence, in the midst of a murderous mob who is about to rush him and kill him, the kindness and the mercy of God to give him this vision that in effect I believe using the sanctified imagination it moves Stephen to stand safe in the glory and the gaze of his Savior. He was gazing into heaven. He says, behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But it was knowing he had the gaze of his Savior. God himself filling him. Even in the face of death. Even in the face of death. He knew he had the acceptance and the approval of the heavenly throne room, which, by the way, would be where he will be in a matter 
of moments. Did you notice how Luke describes his death at the end of verse 16? And he fell asleep. You know what sleep is in the Bible for the believer? Sleep is, this is Luke's way of reminding his readers that death for the Christian leads to resurrection and eternal life with Jesus in the throne room of God. This is meant, when you read that, that we fall asleep, it is meant to give us and fill our hearts with the hope that we have in Jesus. Now listen, chances are none of us in this room will have the door of heaven open to us like Stephen did. But I'm not going to put God in a box. But this is ours. This vision is ours. It's ours by faith, isn't it? It's ours by faith because like Stephen, we too live and breathe and witness and toil and serve and suffer in the glorious realities of our eternity with Jesus. Where Christ is, where Stephen is, we too also will be one day. This is going somewhere. Remember that when you turn on the news and your heart breaks for the people running for their lives or the people right now making Maltal cocktails, is that how you say it? To fight for their homeland. Listen, our homeland is heaven. And so we can have courage in the face of opposition, even like Stephen, even like Stephen. That's what the gospel says to us. The cross and the empty tomb make it so. Jesus, the one advocating for Stephen, the one who stands up to approve and advocate for Stephen in the face of a mob, he is our advocate. He was rejected on the cross so that we could be accepted into heaven. We heard in corporate prayer this morning, Christopher Carsey drew our attention to 2 Corinthians 5.21 to, to prepare us to pray that, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might know the righteousness of God. And that seals us through the Spirit. To know the righteousness of God is to be worthy to spend eternity in his presence. And Jesus himself has accomplished that for us. Ephesians 1 says that the spirit, the moment that we have believed and we are justified, that the spirit marks us. The spirit seals our hearts for his glory. And nothing in this world, no opposition, no dictator, no sin, Nothing can take our destiny in the heavenly throne room away from us. 
That's, that's the eternal perspective that comes from fixing our gaze on Jesus, not just in the moment of trouble, but every day. And listen, oh, how we need this perspective, right? Oh, how we need it. Listen, Christian perseverance is anchored in an eternal perspective. Where it's not, vulnerability to losing heart is sure. Christian perseverance, it's anchored in Christ and who he is for us and what he has done for us. There will be times, listen, there will be times where you are called to stand up for your faith. And you will pay. You may lose your job. For those of you who have a government position or you work in the education system, you're still called to stand up for your faith and you may lose your job. You may be ostracized by family because of your faith, by friends. You may be rejected by the culture. And we talked about this two weeks ago, but the opposition shouldn't surprise us. And one of the things we see here with Stephen is doing the right thing doesn't guarantee a good outcome. But with our eyes fixed on Christ, we don't lose heart. Listen, church, the Lord is doing something. And that includes filling up our eyes more and more with Jesus, the one who has already done the greatest thing at Calvary. Amen? Before we go to the last point, just quickly, three habits that I believe God uses. There's more. Three quick habits that I believe God uses to cultivate an eternal perspective. First, visit your testimony often. Visit your testimony often. Preach Christ to yourself more and listen to yourself less. Second, read about heaven regularly. Heaven on the heart puts earthly troubles on the run. Doesn't make them disappear, but their effect on us is dramatically different. Go read 2 Corinthians 4 that talks about this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for what? for a weight of glory in heaven. Third, prioritize your church. Prioritize your church. The gathering is a heavenly oasis here on earth. Visit your testimony often. Read about heaven regularly and prioritize the gathering. And I believe God will begin to cultivate in you a greater and greater and greater eternal perspective, which is something we all need, a work we all need done in our hearts. Finally, centered on God. We see that Stephen was centered on God. Look how this goes down. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The last straw for the seething Sanhedrin was to hear that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, that Jesus, that he, the one they murdered, he was at the right hand of God. That sealed the blasphemy charge for them. And their minds... That was, that was it. They'd already heard enough. But now, now, they have a foolproof case. In fact, forget about any due process. Notice what verse 57 says. The moment they heard that, they, they, they stopped their ears. All due process went out the door. This is a group of Jewish leaders. These are serious men and they completely were broken. They lost it. All due process went out the door. Luke says they stopped their ears as if to say, we've heard enough. And yelling at him, and yelling at him, they rushed him together. Some translations say that, 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 they, that they rushed him in one accord or, or meaning in one mind. In other words, they all had the same thing in mind. That's it. He's a dead man. Everybody's thinking the same thing. And they rush him. In verse 58, Luke says they seize Stephen. Perhaps even as he's explaining this vision. They drug him out of the city, and they begin to stone him. Stoning was a horrific way to die. I've actually seen a real-life stoning in the Middle East on the Internet. It, it is brutal. We, we don't have much sense of it in the Western world. It was a horrific way to die. They, they put you in a pit so that there was no escape from the blitz of hard, jagged, sharp rocks being hurled at your body. And without going into all the details, if you're being stoned, all you can do is hope that very early on a stone hits you in the head just right and you drop dead immediately. That's, that, 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 that's your only hope. Lord, do it quick. But here's what I want us to see above all things, as this hateful, murderous, bloodthirsty mob pummels Stephen with rocks, he looks up to his Savior that he sees standing there. And notice, did you notice he utters the same words his Savior ushered, uttered? 
the very one, the, the very one who he now sees standing at the right hand of God, uttered the same words from the cross, Father, receive my spirit. Those words come from Stephen's mouth as well. And as he breathes his last, look what he says in verse 60, and falling to his knees. But by the way, they were stoning. This is as they're stoning him. As rocks are bouncing off of him. He hears the jeers. And he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen was filled with the Spirit. He was fixed on Jesus. And he was centered on God. His Final words reveal he knew this wasn't about him. It was about the glory of God. It was about sinners being saved. What could they do to him? He was about to meet his Savior. He knew that the Sanhedrin's problem wasn't with him. He was just the messenger. Their problem was with the holy God. Their greatest need was to be reconciled to God. And I wonder, I wonder, if out of the 70 men and whoever else was there, however many people were I wonder if we will see any of them in heaven because God mercifully responded to Stephen's request. Perhaps one of these men, perhaps the man who threw the stone that struck the final blow, found himself sitting under a man whose name used to be Saul, hearing the gospel, and as we will see last week, Paul referred back to this moment at least twice in his ministry. Perhaps one of these men came to Christ as they listened to Paul, the very one who stood approving this execution Stephen knew. He knew this was not about him. They killed him. Even as they are taking his life, he cries out to God to give them life. Listen, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, we are glad that you are here, but can I make a plea with you? Your greatest need is not to be at church every Sunday. Your greatest need is not to have a tidy family. Your greatest need is not to be heard or to be understood. Your greatest need is that, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Everyone who is conceived, the moment they are conceived, David the psalmist says, is a sinner. 
And there's one way to deal with your sin before a holy God, and it is to bow your knee to the one seated at the right hand of God and say, have mercy on me. Save me. Fill me with your spirit. Give me an eternal place in your heavenly kingdom. Listen, as we think about Ukraine, as we think about evil men like Putin, remember this. Don't lose sight of this. Putin's greatest need is not to have Ukraine back. He needs to know who Jesus is. Soldiers need to know who Jesus is. It's why we are praying for those churches in Ukraine Wouldn't it be amazing to hear stories of people fleeing and yet as they flee the seed of the gospel going forth because they share Christ with a Russian soldier pointing a gun at them. The man who is the modern day Churchill today, Zelensky, what bravery. He's Jewish. He's rejected Jesus. He needs Jesus. His greatest need is not to hold his country together. His greatest need is not to stay alive over the next 72 hours. He needs somebody to tell him about Jesus. Are we praying that way? Stephen knew what these men truly needed. They needed a savior. It wasn't about him. Let me just ask us, when it comes to those who oppose our faith, What are we more aware of? What they are doing to us or what God will one day do to them? Listen, church, the Lord is doing something, not just in Acts, but right here at Sovereign Grace Church, and it all begins here, right here in our hearts. Am I going it alone or pursuing the Spirit? Are my affections fixed on this fleeting world or my eternal Savior? Am I or is God my center?